Well, this is the seventh and final week of the series that we're in called God of the Underdogs. And uh, I hope it's been an encouragement to you that, um, like myself, we have opportunities to be used of God in spite of any limitations that we may feel, in spite of any excuses that we may lean into, that God loves to use people like you and like myself, just like he did people for hundreds of years throughout Scripture, uh, who really had no business being used of God. Today, we're going to end our series uh, with... Uh, an underdog that we all can relate to, uh, unquestionably, and I'll explain that at the end of our time together. But uh, this is such an important message for us that I literally had like two sermons that I wanted to preach about this topic, and so I've condensed them into a sermon and a half, and so we'll only be here like half of twice the length that we normally are, but I'll try to condense it into one time. I just got a lot to say, so I'm excited about that. So anyway, we've got a, we've got a, a huge topic ahead of us today, and uh, before I tell you who the underdog is, we're going to have to do some history. We're going to have to do some background to lead up to who it is, but let me kind of give you the topic just so that you can kind of wrap your mind around it as we're heading in that direction. Um, any of you ever been uh, at an at a place in life where you needed a connection, like you needed a relationship with someone in order to get something out of life that you wouldn't have gotten out of life without that connection, or maybe you've been in an, uh, an opportunity where you did not have a connection, and because you didn't have that connection, you missed an opportunity that someone who had a connection may not have missed. Uh, let me give you an example. When I was in college, um, I lived in Tacoa, where my parents lived for a brief period before um, I moved into an apartment. And during that time, I would drive 30, 35 minutes to school uh, over to Emanuel College. And it was back roads, and um, I loved to drive fast uh, because I didn't like to drive. And so the faster I drove, the quicker I got there. And in this one particular um, day, it was right after Christmas, and I had given my brother um, a, a radar for Christmas so that he could avoid cops. And I asked him, could I try out his, uh, his, his radar detector? And uh, I tried it out, and I drove a little faster than I normally would have, um, and it worked. It detected a radar, but the problem is, is when it detected it, it already like, caught me, and I was like, well, that's really good. It just lets me know when I've been busted a few seconds before I normally would. So I pull over, and this cop gives me a ticket. I'm doing a lot faster than I should, and um, I go to school, and fortunately for us on the basketball team, there was a sheriff that came to all of our games. He was there, I guess, to keep the crowd in order, but he loved basketball, and we had all become friends with this particular sheriff. And so I did what anyone who is in college that didn't want to pay a ticket did. I went to see him. And because of that connection, uh, he gave me a stern lecture of why I shouldn't drive fast, but he ripped up the ticket. And I was like, man, that's awesome, right? It was a connection that I had that got me something uh, out of life that I wouldn't have had if I didn't have that connection. Uh, now, I could tell you opposite stories of that as, as well, where I wish I would have had a connection that I didn't have. But but you in life, you have connections, don't you? For most of us, if, if a car breaks, we know somebody, or at least we know somebody that knows somebody. That's who we're going to go see. That's who's going to take care of us. Um, if we have problems uh, on certain areas in our home, whether it's plumbing or electrical, we have people that we know, or we know people that might know someone. And so when something goes wrong and we need something out of life, we try to find a connection to get more out of life than we would normally get, right? You relate to that. But there's also times where we don't have connections. And that's the frustrating thing about life is because some people who have connections that we don't, 
seem to get more out of life than we get. Right? You know, you know the person that's related to someone, and so they got a job that they really didn't deserve because they were related to someone, and you might have deserved a job or been more qualified for a job, but because you didn't have that connection, you didn't get that opportunity, or there were certain things that you look at people and you say, the only reason that they're whatever, you fill in the blank, is because they know whoever, or they're related to whoever. And as much as we sometimes become jealous or envious or angry or bitter because of other people's connections, it simply points out a lack lack of connection in our own life. And that's part of what drives the jealousy, the envy, the bitterness, is that we realize that connections really do matter in life. As much as we would argue that they shouldn't, connections matter. Because you know someone or because someone else knows someone, they get opportunities that they don't. And today we're going to talk about someone who didn't have a connection. And because he didn't have a connection, he was an underdog. In other words, he shouldn't have been as successful as he was, or he shouldn't have been afforded the opportunities he was because he did not have a connection, just like you may can relate that you may not have certain connections that other people have. Now, before I tell you who this underdog is, I want to do a good bit of history so that we can understand this story in its full and make most sense of it. And so we're going to read a good bit of scripture today. I hope that's okay. 1 Samuel chapter 16. You'll remember the story of the second underdog that we spoke of. His name was David. And we talked about David was an underdog because he was not qualified uh, to be king specifically. The prophet Samuel came to his home, to the home of Jesse, and he was the brother that wasn't even brought into the lineup when they were going to choose the next king. But God chose him as the next king. Now, this is important because he was anointed king in 1 Samuel chapter number 16, but it was some 20 years before he actually stepped into that role. There were 20 years between when he was anointed as king and when he was actually recognized in an earthly sense as the king. And so that period of time in history um, had a great deal to do with where we're going to lead to today. Now, Saul was the king at the time that David was anointed to be king. But David, if you'll remember in the very next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter number 17, uh, went out on the orders of his father to take some supplies to his brothers who were in the army, uh, who were serving uh, their people. And he's, he got there, he realized that there was a giant, his, he was a Philistine that was opposing the armies of the living God. His name was Goliath. And when no one else would go out to fight Goliath, this teenager who had just been anointed king a chapter earlier went out and slayed this giant, defeated this giant. The children of Israel, the armies of God became so empowered that they went and overtook the Philistines and chased them out of their territory. Um, And afterwards, King Saul, who was hiding out in a tent, who was fearful to go out and face this giant, wanted to know who is this young man that defeated this enemy. And so he called David in, and uh, we see that uh, he got to know David, and from that time forward, he invited David to live in the king's palace. So David didn't go back to Jesse's home. He was now kind of, if you will, on the inside because of something that he did. Uh, But over time, we're going to see that things changed in the relationship between Saul and David. Saul was the king. David was anointed as king. And there was this shift where people began to follow David instead of Saul because of God's blessing and God's hand of anointing upon him. Now, Saul had a son. His name was Jonathan. 
Okay? Now, Jonathan and David became like brothers. I mean, they were inseparable friends. They were the closest of friends. And so we're going to kind of pick up the story as we start looking um, at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. This is important that there was, there was a commitment to one another, that there was a unity between Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David as they became friends. And he loved him as himself. It's important. Jonathan loved David as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, covenants... Uh, are, are a rarity in today's culture. Today's culture, we have contracts. Contracts are based on a lack of trust, and contracts describe terms between two parties. And if anyone violates the terms of the contract, then there's consequences. But covenants are based on a love and a compassion for one another. They're not based on a lack of trust. They're based on trust Itself. And so Jonathan made a covenant with David. He loved him as himself. In verse number four, Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. There was an extremely special bond that took place between Jonathan, the son of King Saul, the rightful heir to the throne, the next in line to be the earthly king of the nation of Israel, and this young man named David who had been anointed king by God. Now, this is an unlikely union. This is an unlikely friendship because it's a competing friendship. This is a young man who uh, could potentially take his place as the next king of Israel, and so you would think that there would be um, some competition. You would think that there would be uh, some envy between the two, but that's not what happened. God kind of created this relationship between the two of them. Verse number 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So there's this transition where Saul realizes the hand of God is upon David. He's likely heard the story that the prophet Samuel had anointed David to be the next king, and he begins to see that the hand of the Lord is clearly upon David, and he becomes fearful of him. He was afraid of David uh, because he saw that the Lord was with David. So there's this transition between a king who admired a young man who did something so great for his nation. He invited him into his home. He saw the camaraderie that he and his son had, and then he began to be fearful of him because of the hand of God that was upon him. Verse number 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now a line's been crossed. There's no longer a king that sees someone as a threat. There's a king who opposes someone. And it's kind of one of those situations where you can't just kick him out of the palace because, um, as we're going to see, David actually marries his daughter, Michael. He's best friends with his son, Jonathan. And he knows that if he removes David from his palace, he doesn't just hurt David. He hurts his daughter. He hurts his son. There is some unity happening in his family, but he doesn't like it. He is clearly opposed to David, and he clearly is an enemy to David. He makes it very clear. 
This is a difficult situation for the nation of Israel. I'm sure the outsiders didn't know what was happening on the inside, but you can imagine the way Saul led the nation became different when he led from a sense of fear of someone that would take his place. And so the tides have shifted. Now, starting in 1 Samuel chapter number 20, we're going to see kind of a... uh, Another step forward, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 20, starting in verse number 1. David has now realized the opposition that he is against. Okay, uh, Some of you may have in-law problems. Uh, some of you may have married someone and their parents. You don't have the best of relationships. This is David. He loves his wife, Michael. He's best friends with Jonathan. Uh, but his wife's father is his enemy. Like, he hates him. In fact, it's gotten to a point where it's clear that Saul is trying to kill David. And so we're going to find David um, at a different place here. It says, David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? He's in hiding. He fled for his life. And then he comes back and finds Jonathan. And he says, How is it that your dad's trying to kill me? Like, how has it gotten to this point? What have I done? There are no means that justify this action. What have I done? And he's trying to find answers. And listen to Jonathan's response, his reply. Verse 2, he says, Never, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It is not so. His best friend, the son of the king, is hearing his best friend say, Your dad's trying to kill me, and he doesn't believe it. He says, I'm so important in the life of my dad that there's nothing he does, great or small, that he doesn't run by me. And he hasn't mentioned anything about trying to kill you, David. You're becoming paranoid. There's something going on that's, you know, you're interpreting something wrongly. Can't be happening. And listen to what David says, verse number three. David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Your dad's about to kill me. And he hasn't told you about it because he knows how close we are. And he's hiding this to me. So verse number four, Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. Notice the level of commitment that Jonathan has in this friendship to David. When David exposes his very dad's plan to kill him, Jonathan doesn't say, you know, let me go talk to my dad and figure this out because it's just not true. He immediately, because of his commitment, his covenant with David, and I guess because of God's hand of blessing upon David, he says, well, what is it that you want me to do for you? And we begin to see this plan where David um, and Jonathan alike had been invited to a feast. They're supposed to be having a meal with King Saul among all the family. And David sets this plan forth that says, let's find out if it's true. More so for Jonathan. He wanted Jonathan to know of the plan because he was confident of it in his own heart. Jonathan is starting to side with David if he's having to choose sides, which is a problem for King Saul. Verse number 14, at this 
thought of going to his defense before his father, he takes his commitment to David a step further. Listen to what he says. But show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I might not be killed. This is Jonathan speaking to David. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Listen to what he's saying. I recognize that God's hand is upon your life and that there's coming a day where you will overtake my father. And my father, along with his family, will become enemies of yours in the sight of the nation. And he's saying here, let's make an oath that you'll never remove your hand of blessing from me. Verse 16, so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. You talk about a true friend here. You talk about someone who is faithful to you as a friend. Jonathan exemplifies the epitome of faithfulness in friendship. He loves David, his friend, as he loves himself, so much so that when he sees that there is a clear opposition between his father and David, he sees that David is where God's blessing is. And he makes an oath with David saying, no matter what happens here, I want you to promise me that your blessing will always be upon me. Even when the enemies that oppose you fall, I want to know that if I'm going to stand beside you, that you're always going to stand beside me. Verse number 33, as they're at this meal where David was supposed to be with Jonathan and with his wife, Michael, and the other uh, palace members, uh, listen to what happens as Saul notices that David isn't at the feast. Verse number 30, it says, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. Jonathan had given an account, an excuse as to why David wasn't at the mill. He had said that he had given him permission to go because he had some things to tend to. Saul realized that his son, Jonathan, was defending David, and he became angry. His anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do you notice when you get angry, you say things you don't really mean? He's now bringing his wife into this, cursing his wife. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? Listen to this. As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Listen to how he's trying to pit them against one another. As long as he's alive... God's hand of blessing is upon him, and you're never going to enter the role of king. You're never going to take your rightful place. He's an enemy of yours. He is keeping you from getting something that you deserve out of life. Verse 33, 32. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. Still not taking his father's sides. Defend your reasoning for wanting to kill my best friend. What has he done? What's the reasoning here? But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. I mean, it's, it's kind of turned Jerry Springer here. I mean, we're at a meal, and a man starts kind of cursing his wife. He begins to be at odds with his son. They begin fighting, and he tries to kill his son right there at the table. And it's at that point, it's at that time, that Jonathan realizes 
It's true. What David has said is true. Dad is going to try to kill my best friend. And so Jonathan sends word to David through the plan that they had devised that, yes, you're not safe. You need to stay in hiding. My dad is trying to kill you. We fast forward to the end of 1 Samuel. And tragically, we see that at battle, both Saul and Jonathan die. David loses his best friend. And the king who is in his way to becoming king has been removed. It's a bittersweet time. 2 Samuel chapter 1 is kind of a gut-wrenching chapter where David is just lamenting the loss of his best friend. And so there's a transition. After the morning, David becomes king, and God's hand of blessing is upon him. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. David asks, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He remembered the oath that he had made with Jonathan. Not only with Jonathan, but with the house of Jonathan, with, with Jonathan's family. And it's at some point, as God's hand of blessing is upon David, he's come into his throne, that he begins to remember Jonathan and the oath that he made with Jonathan. He loved Jonathan so much that he began to ask, is there anyone to whom I can show honor on Jonathan's behalf? Now, this is a strange question in light of Scripture because in this day and age when a new king from a new family took the throne, everyone from the family of the old king was seen as an enemy to the new king. And so they were killed off. That there was no risk taking that someone from the old king's family would become jealous of the new king and try to take his life or pose threat to him. And so they would have eliminated all of their family, tragically. And Jonathan, in the midst of that reality, begins to ask, is there anyone left of Jonathan's house whom I can pay honor to? Verse number two, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? To which he would have likely been fearful. Remember, he was a servant to Saul. He would have known that all of David's enemies would have been killed off. And now he's been called before the king. And you can imagine what's going on. Um, And so he replied, your servant, like he's making known my allegiance is to you. I serve you, the king over my allegiance to Saul. And the king asked, verse number three, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. Now, David would have known Jonathan's son. He would have remembered him when he was born. He would have remembered him from the time of childhood. But Ziba points out here that he's crippled in both feet, meaning he's not very valuable. In that day and age, a cripple wasn't seen as an asset in life. They were seen as a liability. They were someone to be taken care of. They weren't someone to contribute to the well-being of the nation. And so they had kind of shipped him off to a place called Lodabar, and he was kind of being taken care of there, and he was no threat to the king himself. And so Ziba points out you know, that he is crippled in both feet. In verse 4, where is he? David asked. And Ziba answered, he's at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. And so King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. Now, we're going to meet our underdog at this point. We're going to meet someone 
who belonged to the house of a former king, who had no connection, blood relation to the current king, who truthfully should have been eliminated, should have been cut off as an enemy to the current king, who had no reason to be in the presence of the king. He had no connection to the king. He had no likelihood that he would be found in eyes of favor with the current king. But David had him brought to Lodabar. Verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, I love that name. I'm pushing for it to be our uh, daughter's name. We'll call her Phoebe. It's not working. Pray for me. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the underdog here. Mephibosheth is not related to David. Mephibosheth is a cripple that's been shipped off, who doesn't really have much to offer. And David has called him to him, and likely, again, he would have had thoughts, why am I being brought before the king? And David said, Mephibosheth, he recognized him. I remember when you were born. I remember just a child. I remember when you were born into this world. And you can hear the excitement in his voice when he realizes Jonathan's son is still alive. And Mephibosheth responded, your servant. Basically saying, I'm, I'm here in peace. You know, I'm on your side. You know, my allegiance is with you. He would have known the relationship that David had with his father. Verse number seven. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I, sh- I will surely show you kindness For the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. This is out of left field. This is not deserved. This is not expected in any sense. This is a cripple that's been shipped off to Lodabar who has no relation to the throne, and yet the king has called him into his presence and says, I'm going to restore to you all the land that Saul, your grandfather, had when he was king because I loved your father, Jonathan so much. And and in addition to that, you're going to sit and eat at my table, which would have been a huge honor. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? You ever felt like a dead dog in life? Like you didn't have much to offer? Like you weren't of value in certain areas of your life? I mean, here's a man that's is low. He feels like a dead dog who has no right, who has no deserving factors in his life that he should be in the presence of the king, let alone the king honoring him as he is doing. And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for when he can't even provide for himself because he's crippled, I'm going to put people in his life to provide for him in addition to giving him land. There's going to be people that are going to take care of the land for him. They're going to bring to him the fruit of the land, and he's going to sit at my table. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. See, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and so David was giving these servants to Mephibosheth. Can you imagine the transition from a crippled man living in a distant land 
who had nothing and felt like a dead dog to now being brought into the presence of the king and saying, you're going to eat at my table and I'm going to give you all the land of your grandfather when he was king and I'm giving you servants and you're going to be provided for by them. I mean, this is completely undeserved. It's a grace that he didn't deserve. He had no connection that tied him to this type of honor, to this type of blessing. There was nothing that he could have done to bring this upon himself. He couldn't have worked for it. He couldn't have finagled his way. No matter what smooth talk he may have possessed, this was a man who had been given something that he did not deserve. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Do you realize that you and I are Mephibosheths? That we have nothing in and of ourselves that would tie us to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. There is nothing that we deserve from Christ outside of death. We're born into a sinful generation. We're born into a sinful world. And on our own, we have nothing to offer a king. We're like Mephibosheth. We're crippled in our own rights, spiritually speaking. We're dead and dead dogs, if you will. If there was a king named Jesus who loved you and loved me enough that he was willing to take us into his own family and to give us a hope for a future, he was able to create for us a family that we didn't deserve and to give us rights that we couldn't earn. He was able to establish for us a home that far exceeds anything that we could ever build for ourselves. I love how the Apostle Paul describes this relationship between us and King Jesus in Ephesians chapter number 1, starting in, verses, and starting in verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Listen to this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, I love this, he predestined. In other words, it was his plan A. It was his initial plan. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us and the one he loves. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Some 42 generations removed, a great-grandson 42 generations removed, of David, was born into the earth. His name was Jesus. And he grew up to rescue humanity and become the king above all other kings. And his plan for you and for me was not that we would be enemies of his, which we deserve to be in every right, but he has adopted us as sons because of his great love and compassion for us. He has given us a place in his family. We aren't on the outside looking into the family of God because of his love for him. Underdogs, 
without a connection, without anything that could earn a relationship with Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us from the world that we live in, from the family that we deserve, and he has placed us out of his good grace and favor upon your life and upon my life, at his table with him, that we could be seated with the king. You're an underdog. Like it or not, you weren't born into the family of God. You were born an opponent to King Jesus. You had a sinful nature. Jesus had every right for you to experience the wages that those sins earned you. Which Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We were Mephibosheths in this world, spiritually speaking. We were disconnected from the king. We had no right to the throne. We had no heir to claim. But Jesus, in his great love and grace for us, established a relationship by which we could be part of his family. We could be seated with him at the throne. And you talk about not having a connection. We didn't have the most important connection But in spite of being underdogs, Jesus, when he died on the cross, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he gave us a way to have a relationship with God Almighty. Underdogs, you and I alike. Not because of any failure in our past, not because of any limitation in our talents, but because by nature... We were opponents of God. But he loved us enough to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he adopted us as sons if we'll receive the grace and mercy that he offers into our life. And we can celebrate that we sit at the table of King Jesus because of his grace and nothing that we've done in ourselves. We are part of God's family. And as an underdog, you aren't limited by your lack of connections to Christ anymore. You can have a direct line to him. I love that when Jesus was crucified, when he gave up his last breath, and when he died upon the cross, there was a veil that separated the presence of God from the priest. And that veil was torn in two, meaning no longer do we have to have a priest to access the very presence of God, but we have direct access because of the sacrifice of Jesus to the very king that we serve. I want to celebrate with you today that we're sons of God by adoption. He treats us as he treats his own. He doesn't look at us through the lenses that we deserve. He doesn't look at us through the eyes of opponents, but he looks at us as children whom he loves as his very own, and he seats us at his table to be treated and honored as the very best. You're not an underdog any longer if you're in Christ Jesus. What limited you from the relationship with God the Father has been done away with when Christ redeemed us by dying on the cross. And today, I want to just remind us that there is no reason for us not to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no limitation 
in our life. There's no failure in our past that can keep us from sitting at the table of King Jesus. And as we come before him, we can have a confidence that we're coming before him as children of God, as part of the king's family, as having a royalty that's not our own, but that's been graced to us in his presence. But the other side of this story that I want to leave us with is a sermon in of itself. I want to go back to a few verses, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. You remember David had called Ziba into his presence, asking if there was anyone of Saul's home still left. Verse 4, David asked Ziba, where is he, speaking of this son of Jonathan? And Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amal and Lodabar. Verse 5, I hope that this verse will do for you what it's done for me this week. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amal. Jesus didn't go and get Mephibosheth from Lodabar and bring him back. What did he do? He had him brought, meaning what? Someone went to Lodabar, had a conversation with Mephibosheth, and brought him to the king. Someone brought him to the king. And if you've ever met the king, there's someone in your life that brought you to him, who played a role in your story by which you were introduced to King Jesus. And we have no greater honor than to be a servant. I don't know specifically if it was Ziba that went to get Mephibosheth, but David, as king, had servants that in service to him went and brought someone back to him. And this week, man, I've just been thinking of what an honor we have not only as sons of King Jesus, but as servants of King Jesus. On his behalf, to go and bring people to the king, to go and bring people into his presence, that they might receive what we have received in him. I believe that we have no greater privilege, no greater responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ than to serve him by bringing people to Jesus, that he might adopt them into his family, that he might grace them with something that they don't deserve. And my question for me this entire week, and my question for you as we end our time together is, who in your life is King Jesus asking you to bring to him? Who in your life, who in your family, who in your workplace, who in your sphere of friends, who in your classroom, who on your team doesn't know Jesus is an underdog by very nature because they are not connected to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who in your life would the King have you bring to him? Who in my life would the King have me bring to him? And as his servants, the greatest role that we can play in the life of people that we love, that we're connected to in this life, is that we would bring them to Jesus and he would do for them what he can't do for themselves. I love that Jesus allows us to play that role in his story. And for many of us, it's as simple as inviting someone to church. It's bringing someone into the very place where they can meet the king. It's taking a risk and asking a question that might not be answered in the way that we hope that it will be answered. 
For others of us, it might be personally investing in someone and speaking to them in terms that might introduce them to King Jesus. But I want to ask us, especially over the next few weeks as we're leading up to Easter, to make it a point, to make it a priority, to examine our lives, to look at the people that surround us, to look at those near us, to those who may be connected to us in whatever way, form, or fashion, and simply ask the question, who can I bring to King Jesus, that they might be adopted as sons and daughters into his family and receive the grace that we've received in him. It's a privilege. It's not a duty. It's an honor. It's not simply a responsibility that we get to be the servants who bring people into the presence of the king and see their lives transformed forever. Don't underestimate your ability to play an incredibly crucial role in someone's eternity and see them being brought from death to life through simple invitations. Uncomfortable sometimes, yes. Difficult sometimes, absolutely. Leave us feeling frustrated, sometimes you bet. But at the end of the day, I'm simply asking us to ask ourselves a question. Is King Jesus asking us to bring anyone to him. What would have happened if the servant said, said, you know, we've got other responsibilities, David. I can't really go get him right now. You might need to find someone else. Probably wouldn't have gone well for him. But they understood the importance of the task given to them, and they were willing to go to Lodabar and bring this underdog to Jesus, and he transformed his life. To David, actually. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters, those of us who have placed our faith in you, who have received salvation in you, that we are no longer outsiders, but by your grace and your mercy through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you redeemed us, you rescued us from death and brought us to life, and we are now a part of the family of God, and we're seated with you at your table, that you treat us as your very own. And there is honor in that. And we're so grateful for that. But thank you, Father, also for the opportunities that we have to bring people into your presence. As your servants, as people who serve you, we have the honor to bring Mephibosheths, those who are dead dogs, into the very presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and see you transform their lives and give them what they don't deserve and invite them into a family that they have no connection to. I love that you are for underdogs and I love that when the odds are against us, you are for us and you fight for us. And I pray today that we would be able to play a significant role in the lives of Mephibosheths in our world. And we would simply bring people to you and see their lives transformed.